You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. And if you don't have a Bible, would you please grab one in the seats in front of you? And you can turn to Mark chapter 7 on page 843 in those Bibles. We continue our study of this amazing gospel and unpack a passage that a pastor and theologian from the 20th century, William Barclay, said is the most revolutionary passage in all of Scripture. And I have to tell you that I felt the weight of that as I have studied it over these last two weeks. I felt the weight of it as I preached it last week, and I felt the weight of it, more importantly, as I myself have intended to take what I've learned and transition it into living. It's the topic of tradition. And that topic is familiar to you as a human being. In fact, every human being, if you have a conversation with them that somehow goes below the surface, will reveal the traditions that they hold. After all, traditions are a collection of principles or beliefs that guide the way that we live. In fact, I talked to a couple last night that I had never met before, and they started talking about life, Christianity, and ministry, and I learned very quickly that they had a tradition. I learned very quickly that I had a tradition, and in many respects, our traditions aligned with each other. In some respects, our traditions differed. So how are we to respond to tradition? Well, a movement back in the 90s and 2000s called the Emerging Church evaluated tradition and started out on the right foot. They evaluated all that we did as churches and said, is what we do valid? There's a lot of tradition in churches. What we are doing right now is a tradition that we have established for our church. And the emerging church was asking the right questions, but not looking to the right source for the answers. And unfortunately, what they did before the movement fizzled out was threw tradition out with the bathwater. Tradition in and of itself is not wrong. And Jesus was not condemning tradition for tradition's sake in the first part of this passage. What he was condemning is traditionalism. Traditionalism. That is when you take tradition to a place that the Bible never intended. The two ways this plays out most vividly is, first of all, legalism. In fact, we'll put a definition up on the screen for legalism. Legalism is when tradition becomes the standard of righteousness or requirement of salvation in a way Scripture does not prescribe. Let me hasten to add that just because you have high standards or conservative values does not mean you are legalistic. That is what the emerging church concluded as they threw out tradition within churches. That is the knee-jerk reaction of society as they see Christians or people who are conservative morally hold to their standards. They say, well, you are being legalistic. But legalism, as biblically defined, is when you take man-made traditions and you elevate them to the standard of righteousness or a requirement of salvation in a way that the Bible does not prescribe. Well, some of you might have a background, as I do, that had legalism all throughout it that manifested itself by saying that women could not wear pants 
I see a lot of sinners out there this morning. It manifested itself by saying you cannot play face cards, but somehow you could play rook. It manifested itself by saying you can't go to movies, that you can only read one inspired Bible translation, which is, of course, the King James Version. And that somehow, if you held to different convictions, maybe that didn't put your salvation in question, but it for sure put your spirituality and your righteousness in question. And right now I'm experiencing PTS. But it's not just that kind of a background. We can get to a place, even at Ascend Church, where we begin to look at our man-made traditions, valid as though they may be, as though they are a standard of righteousness or requirement of salvation in a way that the Bible does not prescribe. That was going on in a rampant sense in the days of Jesus. A second way that tradition can become traditionalism is the topic of hypocrisy. Jesus hit that head on last week. We'll put a definition up on the screen. Hypocrisy is using tradition as a smokescreen to distract others from the true condition of your heart. So maybe that's what you are doing right now. Maybe you pulled out of the driveway this morning hoping that your neighbors would see you. Maybe you are doing this this morning so that on Monday when you're talking to your associates in your workplace and they say, what did you do this weekend? You can say, I went to church and somehow conveyed to them that you are spiritual when you know yourself you are not. Beloved, these are two applications of traditionalism that Jesus is hitting head on. So last week we laid the foundation for how this can be a smokescreen. This week we apply what Jesus says in part two with prescriptions for seeing through traditionalism. Let me read our passage, and then we will see three prescriptions from Jesus to see through traditionalism. Let's look beginning at verse 14. And he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the person that going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of the person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Three prescriptions, beloved, that I pray you will write down, but more importantly, will penetrate your hearts and minds, because... If we will apply this prescription to our lives, we will be able to see through the smokescreen of traditionalism in others and ourselves. Number one, align your prescription with gospel understanding. Align your prescription with gospel understanding. Look at verse 14 and remind yourself that we often read scripture without drilling down into it. 
We often read scripture for face value without engaging or wrestling with the content. We often read scripture depending on what other pastors and authors say about the text. But what I intend to do every week when I preach the passages of scripture is to give you tools and instruction for how you can study it yourself. Look at verse 14. It says that Jesus called the people to him. And what's the big deal? Well, the verb here is usually used for Jesus calling his disciples to himself. In fact, this verb is only used twice in the Gospel of Mark in this context. In fact, the other one, look over at Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Is Jesus calling the crowd to himself, saying, If anyone would come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, when Jesus calls people to himself, he is interested in making sure that you are an authentic follower of him. That is important for us to understand for this context in Mark chapter 7. When Jesus summons you, when he summons the crowd, it is for the purpose of exposing whether you are his disciple or you are outside. And so that's important here because of what he says to the crowd in verse 14 of Mark 7. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Beloved, the path to authentic discipleship and to the authentication of it is found in two words that I invite you to circle in this verse. Hear and understand. Hear and understand. The first word here is the Greek word akuo. It's the word we get the English word acoustics. But rather than just a general sense of sound, rather than just a general sense of being aware of a sound, the word akuo means to intentionally engage for the purpose of responding. In other words, if you are accuoing my message right now, you are sitting at the edge of your seat, metaphorically speaking, with pen in hand, hopefully a little bit more practically speaking, but for the purpose of hearing and responding appropriately. That is the beginning of discipleship. The beginning of discipleship is someone listening to the words of Jesus, listening to the words of Scripture for the purpose of responding appropriately, and that bears itself out with the second word to underline, and that is verse 14, understand. To understand. How do you know whether or not you understand? Well, it begins with an illustration of my marriage. Which, by the way, can I say very quickly, guys, marry well. Do you know that marrying well is more than just the body that you can see or the face that you can see? In fact, let me give you a verse that I, I want us men to own. Proverbs eleven twenty two. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discernment. Listen, men, if you are looking at pornography, you're looking at gold rings in a snotty nose of a pig. Yes, they might be attractive. They usually are. But they are women without discernment or else they would never pose for those pictures. 
Beloved, we are always looking for jewels of gold in a gold treasure box. That's what I have. I think she's the most beautiful woman in the world. She didn't pay me to say that. I genuinely believe that. But her beauty is so much beyond her skin. Her beauty is in her character. Her beauty is in her disciplines. Her beauty is in the way she stewards our home and our kids. Marry well. Do not settle for jewels of gold in a pig's snout. But marrying well includes more than just looks. It includes more than just personality. It includes being able to cook well. <laughs> That's where I've gone outside of Scripture, okay? <laughs> but I can tell you my wife can just flat out cook. In fact, the quickest way that she can get to my heart is her gluten-free chocolate chip cookies. And as a Proverbs 31 woman, she is entrusting to my daughters the finer things in life. We call it the finer things clubs. And she does so by teaching them how to make her gluten-free chocolate chip cookies. Now, just being fully transparent, my girls do a fairly good job, but I can usually tell when they made the cookies and when my wife makes the cookies. Until this last week, we had guests, and I came home from a long day of work. Pastoring is so hard. And I'm just famished, and I look, and there is a platter of gluten-free chocolate chip cookies. And I exercise my dad prerogatives. You know what that means. It means you don't have to wait for dinner. You don't have to wait for vegetables. You just partake. And so I did that, and I ate them, and I sang the praises of my wife, and I said, many women have excelled, but you have exceeded them all. And then she said to me, I didn't make them. I said, wait, what? She said, your daughter made them. And beloved, that is an illustration of gospel understanding in this. Gospel understanding is when you can't tell a difference between the authentic source and the one following it. And beloved, that isn't just in practice, although it should be that. When you respond to the circumstances of life and people are like, wow, you're different. How did you do that? When you come to a service like this and you are engaging with the words, you're singing as best as you possibly can, even if you have a horrible voice like I do. Why? Because you're offering it to the Lord. When you're engaging with the preaching of God's word right now, not to just check a box, but to hear some nugget from God's word that you can learn and translate into living. Beloved, listen, that is understanding. But, but when you start to speak of Scripture the way that God does, when you begin to speak of Jesus the way that the Scriptures do, and you're not just painting a picture of Jesus as somebody who just loves indiscriminately, do you realize that God's love for people is discriminating? Do you realize that God has standards by which he will judge people? Do you realize that he heals, but he doesn't heal everyone? When, when that's the Jesus that you love and that you're speaking about and you're sharing with others, then guess what? You have understanding. And how you can tell whether or not your understanding of Scripture and Jesus is accurate is, does it bear up under all of Scripture? Not just the parts we like. You ever heard about the Thomas, Ver Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible? has a lot of cutouts, doesn't it? There's pastors and professing Christians today who have Thomas Jefferson Bibles. 
They cut out the parts they don't like, the parts that are hard to understand. Beloved, gospel understanding is when you can't tell the difference between the authentic source and the one following it. And Jesus is constantly calling his disciples to give evidence that they understand. Listen, there's three steps to the path of understanding. Would you write these down? First of all, you have to have accurate facts. You have to have accurate facts. And in this day and age, accuracy is kind of a moving target, isn't it? But it isn't if you're a Christian. Because accuracy is measured by the word of God, Genesis through Revelation. But it's not just having accurate facts, beloved. Listen, you need to actually be able to connect the dots. It's not enough to know about the battle of Ai. It's not enough to know all of the kings of Israel and Judah. It's not enough to be able to recite the Ten Commandments. You've got to be able to know how they all connect together. And that's what Jesus is constantly teaching his disciples is don't just tell me the facts. I want you to know how they connect together. And then the third step is give evidence of worship-motivated faithfulness. Beloved, that's understanding. That's gospel understanding. Listen, there's a lot of people out there that go to great Bible studies and they have accurate facts, and and that's, that's good, but that's a start. Accurate facts is just the beginning of understanding. You gotta understand how they all connect. And the centerpiece of how they all connect is Jesus Christ. And then you give evidence of this understanding by faithfulness that is worship motivated. The people who have great Bible knowledge and great theology but have lives that are hypocritical are giving evidence that they don't understand and that most likely, even though they are well-educated, they're not authentic disciples of Christ. Beloved, this is an important and crucial prescription if you want to see through the lenses of traditionalism, see through the smokescreen. We must have gospel understanding. Now, a word from our sponsor. So this is 1B. (laughs) The sponsor of this particular Sesame Street is the Bible. Look at verse 16 in your ESV, would you please? Well, some of you can see that it's not there. If you have a New American Standard, verse 16 is there, but it's in brackets. If you have a New King James Version, that's a whole other topic. We can grab a coffee about it, but it's there. And what it says is, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. Now, why am I stopping to address this? Because I want to educate us on the Bibles that we hold in our hands. And will you give me some grace in this? I grew up in a church where these kinds of sermons were not preached. These kinds of topics and sponsorships were not addressed And maybe 10 years from now, as a 20-year veteran, as a pastor, I'll realize, Jeff, what were you thinking? But at least right now, I want us to walk out of here with a better confidence that the book that we hold in our hands is God's Word. So to do that, let me just highlight the fact that when we come to difficult topics in our lives, we typically respond in three ways. Many of us avoid them. Others awkwardly try to walk through, and we break a, lot of, break a lot of plates in the process. And the third way that we handle these things, especially in Christianity, is that we often think, oh no, this is a chink in the armor of truth. But can we just allow for the fact that there are some things in our lives and in the world around us that are straightforward, and there are others that, hey, we've got to stop and acknowledge that they're complicated. 
If you're not willing to acknowledge that, let me just ask you a question. Where do babies come from? <laughs> Usually that's, like, parents are like, Ugh. Which, let me just give you, this is like a second advertisement. <laughs> you know, a lot of times parents punt on this. Don't do that. Your kids are going to learn one way or the other. And if you don't teach them, they're going to learn from their friends. They're going to learn from the world's entertainment. They're going to learn from secular education, and they will corrupt God's design. So we actually have a resource that's not in the library because I want you to think about it before you all rush to get it for free. But it's called Passport to Purity, and I would encourage you to write that down. It is a collection of CDs put out by Family Life that will help you equip your kids with a gospel-centered understanding of purity. It is gold. May we as Christian parents not punt or speak awkwardly about something that God has designed to be beautiful but is a little complicated. Okay, end of that advertisement, back to the original advertisement. And that is, remember how the Bible was written. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, remember, I've argued that it is Peter who is dictating to Mark the experiences that he had with Jesus, dictating to Mark how those fit together for a purpose that they intend to communicate, and that is that this Jesus, who is historically the original audience remembered, was in fact Messiah, Son of God, the fulfillment of redemptive history. That's the purpose of the Gospel of Mark. And so Peter is dictating this to Mark. Mark is writing it down. He's asking for clarification. They get their final work, and then they send that off to the original audience. Now, the original audience reads it. They realize, hey, this is good. They start making copies. Now, in the ancient world, there were different approaches to making copies. There were some who were extremely careful about it, like the Qumran community, and others who just were about doing it quickly, maybe adding a little bit, maybe taking away about a little bit of it for the purpose of clarity and understanding. Now, remember when we were growing up, when you had a large circle, and you did that little exercise where you would whisper to the first person a story, and then it would make its way around what happened by the time it got back to the original source. There usually was a little corruption. Anytime that I've ever done that, other than when you're doing it with middle school boys, usually the story comes back very close to the original source. But in that particular illustration, we have to acknowledge that the manuscripts that we have put together for generations and thousands of years have the potential to have some corruption. Can we at least acknowledge that? So then how can I say with 100% confidence that the book that we hold in our hands is the authoritative word of God? Three reasons. I would ask you to write this down. First of all, the manuscript evidence. The manuscript evidence, the volume of manuscripts, the proximity that we have to the original authorship is unparalleled with ancient documents. In fact, I find it fascinating that a work like the Iliad and the Odyssey is universally agreed upon by scholars to be written by Homer, and yet we have way more manuscripts way closer to the original authorship with the Bible, and yet they say, no, not written by who it says it is. The manuscript evidence is voluminous. Won't try that again. Number two, scientifically, it is proven accurate. 
Scientifically, it is proven accurate, not just by the evidence of science, but by the method of textual criticism. You can write that down if you want to dig into it, you can. But textual criticism takes all of the different manuscripts, looks at penmanships, looks at style of writing, cross-examines, looks at the parchments, looks at the, the sections from documents like the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls. And it takes this scientific approach and the scientific accuracy that the book that we hold in our hands is unparalleled to any other document. Number three, this is one that is often overlooked, the Holy Spirit. This book claims to be written by God. That's something that especially modern scholars forget. And they get so focused on Paul, and he wrote, but then there was people that he dictated to, and so how can we know this is because of the Holy Spirit, and because of the scientific accuracy, and because of Scripture interpreting Scripture, and because of the volume of manuscripts. And you may say, well, I'd like to dig into this more. Wonderful. We have some great resources in our library. Stop by this week. I'll point you in the right direction if you want to dig down more. But I just want to make sure that when you read the English Bibles that you have, and there's a verse 15 and then a verse 17, or you go to John chapter 7, verse 53, through the first part of chapter 8, and it has brackets and says, probably wasn't in the original manuscripts. Or you go to the end of Mark, and we'll get there, chapter 16, and you see that there's an entire half of the last chapter that says, most likely, this was not in the original Bible. Ah, we don't have to freak out. We can have great level of confidence that the minuscule percentage of verses that fall into this category of potential corruption do not change the message, do not change the surrounding context, do not change the fact that the book that we hold in our hands is the authoritative word of God. Therefore, we are responsible to live by it. End of the sponsored advertisement. So now, number two, accept your prescription, gospel responsibility. So we first have to align our prescription to gospel understanding. Now we accept our prescription, which is gospel responsibility. Look at verse 15 and 16. There is nothing outside the person by going into him can defile him. Remember, the context is that the religious leaders are frustrated, upset, angry because some of Jesus' disciples were not cleansing their hands before they ate. Remember, this is a ceremonial tradition of the elders. And Jesus is reminding them that it's not what's outside that defiles them, but verse 15, what comes out of the person. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, it seems like it's pretty straightforward, especially if you've read verses like Matthew 12, 34, where Jesus said, out of the heart flows the issues of life. You read the Proverbs, out of the heart flows the issues of life. They should have been familiar with this, but there was a tension that they had But let me explain to you why we should acknowledge the tension. Because in the Mosaic law, remember that if you touched a dead person, what did that make you? Unclean. Remember, if you ate an unclean animal, let's say a pig, it made you what? Unclean. So you can see now why the people of Jesus' day were living in attention with what Jesus was saying. Wait a minute. You're saying that that pig can't make me unclean? You're saying that that dead body can't make me unclean? Well, let's think about this in our own 
context. If you look at an image on a screen and you process it in an immoral way, that can make you unclean, can't it? If you partake in drugs or alcohol that move you to a place of drunkenness, that's something on the outside that can contribute to your uncleanness. So do you see how we have a tension here? Maybe some of you have had painful experiences in the past of others doing something to you or you making bad decisions in the past that have ongoing effects Then now you see something on the outside of you that somehow made you unclean. Do you see how there's a potential tension? And so it gives me an opportunity to illustrate this in a way that I've done before. And this is not mine. I got this from Paul Tripp. So this is not my creation, but there are circumstances in our life that shake us. They they shake us. Pandemics. Our county coming out with recommendations for kids in schooling in the fall. Parties being elected into power that do not align with God's standards and designs. Abuse of the past, spouses who did not live up to their marital responsibilities. And we get shaken. Illnesses, disorders. But the illustration is this that when life gets shaken, what happens? Well, something comes out. And in this particular case, the question must be asked. Why did the stage and I get wet? And most people will say, because you took the cap off. Most people will say, because you shook the water bottle. But the answer is, there was water inside. Because when I shake this water bottle, nothing comes out. The illustration is, in the second case, that is a person living with gospel victory. The other situation is somebody living without gospel victory. And so, friends, let's acknowledge, and Jesus would acknowledge that there are circumstances outside of ourselves that are unclean. There are circumstances outside of us that are painful. And you might be sitting here saying, Pastor, you do not know what it is like to be sexually abused when you are a child. And by God's grace, that's true. You may say, well, Pastor, you don't know what it's like to have your parents divorce at a young age. And by God's grace... That's true. But it does not remove the point that Jesus is making, and that is that when those experiences of your life have shaken your water bottle and sin or dishonor to the glory of Christ has come out, that's on you. It's your responsibility. Beloved, this is a crucial step to being able to see through the smokescreen of traditionalism. Verse 15 says these objects are morally neutral. They go into the stomach. They are expelled. And the disciples must have been processing that, thinking through their Mosaic law understanding and struggling to understand. But the point is given in verse 19. It says it enters not his heart. That is the epicenter of responsibility. Would you circle that? Would you underline that? If sin is present in your life, it is because sin is in your heart. 
And we know that there are difficult circumstances. I, I, listen, I've talked to military veterans, and they have had horrific past circumstances. That when I've heard them give the detail, I would not wish that on my worst enemy. It is horrific, but it still leaves the responsibility with them to respond to the past and to the present and to the future in a way that honors Christ. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. So brethren, if you want to be able to see through the smokescreen of traditionalism in your life and others, you must apply gospel responsibility. There's a a second sponsor, word from our sponsor, that I want to touch on here because this is important. Look at the end of verse 19. (laughs) My my Bible is soaked. (laughs) And I remember a, a, a teacher when I was growing up explained to us as little third graders that if you place anything on top of your Bible, that is sin. So I think right now she would be rolling over in her grave. (laughs) Nonetheless, the word of God says this at the end of verse 19. Thus, he declared all foods clean. What does that mean? Well, you notice there's parentheses around that. That means that it designates that the words that are found in those parentheses are not the words of Jesus. They were the words of the author, who is Mark, who is being dictated to by whom? Have you been listening? Peter. Peter. That's going to be very important in just a moment. But do you ever struggle with how the Old Testament and the New Testament are supposed to fit? you ever struggle with whether or not you should be able to eat pig and pepperoni? you ever struggle with sacrifices and dietary restrictions and family restrictions that the Bible says are statutes forever? I want to explain to you some tools that will help you to be able to understand how this all fits together, beginning with defining the Mosaic Law. From the book of Exodus all the way to the time of Jesus, all of those books are focused on the Mosaic law. That is the instruction by God for his people that has certain intentions. Here's the definition. The Mosaic law is God's instruction and design by which his people were to live and by which their obedience identified them as his. That is important for us to understand, especially when we think of the big picture of God instructing his people. Consider all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. There there was instruction that God gave to Adam and Eve that was rather simple. He told Adam to care for the garden in such a way that would require priestly responsibilities. If you've been here to ascend, I don't have to explain that to you. If you haven't, and this is your first Sunday, the the two verbs in Genesis chapter 2 where God instructs Adam to take care of the garden are priestly verbs that we see elsewhere in Torah. And so God gave instruction to Adam, priestesize 
of the Garden of Eden. What does that mean? That means you take care of the Garden of Eden and you expand it to reach the corners of the earth that God had created for the purpose of Habakkuk 2.14, that the glory of God and the praise of God would extend to all corners of his creation. That was the instruction. And practically speaking, God said, oh, and by the way, do not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the simple instruction to Adam and Eve. How did they do? They failed. And in Genesis chapter 3, from that point forward, every human being has a bent to go against God's design. Husbands go against God's design by domineering their wives or giving up their authority in the home altogether. Wives go against God's design by wanting their husband's authority, by refusing to submit. And it goes on and on and on. And so God gave instruction to those who would be his people to help them go against their natural bents. And you have instruction to Abraham that started out very simple. Leave your homeland, leave your family, and go to the land that I will show you. It was instruction to his son Isaac, to his son Jacob, to the Jews as they were heading down to Egypt, as they were in Egypt. But then they started to expand and expand and expand. And you see that the, 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 the propensity for humans to go against God's design goes all the way back to Genesis 6, doesn't it? Genesis 6, the sons of God and the daughters of man. And God says, nope, not my design, flood. He says, you know what? I'm going to raise up Adam 2.0. Noah, I'll start with your family. Here's the instruction. Same as the Garden of Eden. How did they do? Failed. Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. God says, nope, I'm going to start again. Essentially, Adam 3.0 in the nation of Israel through Abraham. And of course, by the time that they got to be hundreds of thousands and millions, he had to give them a law, an instruction that was very detailed. That's the Mosaic law. But by the time you get to the New Testament and you get to Jesus, all of a sudden you start seeing Jesus handle that Mosaic law very differently, don't you? Remember the Mosaic Covenant said you're not to touch lepers because that will make you unclean. What did Jesus do to lepers? He touched them. Go back to Mark chapter 2. There was this whole Sabbath thing that was so important that people could be executed if they violated and, and the law of Sabbath and worked on Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You have Jesus going against the Mosaic law. Now, some people have said, no, no, no. This is against the tradition of the religious leaders. No, no, no. This is the law of Moses that Jesus is going against. And that's why when you get to this parentheses, that's why when you get to Matthew 5.17, you start to see, ah, this was the purpose of the Mosaic law. This was the purpose of the instruction to Adam. This was the purpose of the instruction to Noah. It all was shadows pointing to a substance. The substance is Christ. And so that's why in Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I didn't come to throw it away. I came to fulfill it. I came to be its substance. I came to show you what the form of the law was intended to function toward, and that is faith in me. That is worship of Christ. 
And so when Christ comes on the scene, he has the authority to begin the last chapter, which is all about him, which all of the shadows of previous laws and previous generations are no longer needed. They served their purpose, and now they are gone. It's, it's like this illustration. Any of you ever been to Disney World in Florida? Brian Vickers, my, my professor at Southern, wrote a book on justification. I cannot recommend it highly enough. But one of the things that I really appreciated about him was the explanation of the purpose that billboards serve as you're driving those endless highways heading towards Disney World. The the, the kids and the parents are excited, aren't they? Well, maybe the kids are. And they're seeing, oh, oh, you mean I can actually go and ride a spaceship on a space mountain? You mean I can actually ride a boat through pirates? You mean I can actually have a photo with a well-dressed mouse? And the anticipation is rising, isn't it? And they arrive at the theme park, and they park, and they go, and the parents drop their mortgage. (laughs) And then the kids rush in through the gate of the happiest place on earth, and guess what? No more billboards. Why? Because the substance is there. And what Jesus is saying is there's no more need for billboards. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians. The the law served its purpose to guide us toward something. Toward what? Toward Christ. And he's here. So the law is no longer needed. So when Mark says this, he's actually speaking for Peter that Jesus is declaring something about the law of Moses, and that is that it was shadow. The substance is Christ. So what do we do with the Old Testament? Do we just only read the New Testament? The answer is no. We use the Old Testament for the purpose it was intended to provide. And that is to lay a foundation on the character of God. To lay a foundation for the sinfulness of man. To whet our appetites for Messiah. So that when he arrives at Matthew 1, we're not just reading the felt board version of Jesus. We're seeing him in 4K high def. It serves the purpose it was intended to serve. But we do not live according to the Mosaic law. It's the billboards. It served its purpose. What about the statutes that are forever? Well, this verse explains that. The forever was until Jesus said otherwise. And he says it here. One more thing I will hasten to add. Write down Acts chapter 10 and verse 16. This is Peter having a vision where the the picnic blanket comes down. Remember this one? There's all kinds of food on there. There's kosher, and there's deep dish pizza, pepperoni style. I'm sure of it. And Peter's looking at that and says, wait a minute. I, I can't eat this. Why? Because the Mosaic law says some of this is unclean, and what does God say? Do not call unclean what I have created. 
So this is Peter saying, wait a minute, okay, now I get it. When Jesus said this and when he was teaching this, this is what he was saying, that the Mosaic Law billboards are done. They've served their purpose. Let's remember the purpose. It actually sets up well the purpose of the New Testament and the words by which we live as commandments by instruction. We don't throw it out. We use it, though, for what it was intended to be. That's the word from our sponsor. Let's move to number three. Number three, back to our prescriptions. Oh, no, wait, yeah, let me find it. Apply your prescription, there we go. Gospel regeneration. This is it, this is how he brings it home. And he does so with a list. If any of you have seen What About Bob, there's a scene I was trying to remember, and Dr. Leo Marvin is writing out a prescription. And then Bob is like, oh, he's had so many prescriptions. He's like, oh, not another drug. I think sometimes we feel that way when we see a list, don't we, in Scripture? Not another list. Oh, but there's a gift. There's a gift here because we usually respond to these lists in one of two ways. Number one is we assign our own definition to the words in the list, don't we? Our own experience. And we often do so in a way where we craft the definition so that we will be innocent. (laughs) Or we will look for the worst topics in this list and we will say, that's not me. And then all of a sudden, we're innocent. But I want to highlight just a few of these so that we can see the gift that a list like this provides. Look at what it says in verse 21. There's sexual immorality. Why am I highlighting that? Because... Some of you might be tempted to say, well, I haven't committed adultery. I'm not on this list, but there's an adultery word here and this word. This word is porneia, which includes all manner of sexual activity outside of God's design. Ouch. Look at the word covetous or envy in some of your translations. You may say, well, that's not me. Well, listen to this definition. I'll put it up on the screen. A strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or more than other people have or better or newer regardless of need. Man, I was convicted about this this last week. This is my own testimony. Maybe you can't relate to this, but Black Widow came out and everybody knows that anything by Marvel is gold. DC is horrible. Just kidding. But we love Marvel as a family. So Black Widow came out, and you have to pay $29.99 to be able to get early access to it. And so we were wanting to have that as a family. I had a friend in between services that gave me some money. He's like, here you go, brother. <laughs> but here's the point. Don't do that. Here's the point. My, my propensity is that when I want something, I just get it. It's $29.99. What's the big? My wife says to me, how much do we have in our stream, streaming category in our budget? 13. <laughs> 13. Then we can't get it. Yeah, but I can find it in like transportation. No, can't get it. And I sat there stewing, oh, realizing that I was being covetous. Didn't even think through need. Didn't even think through gospel stewardship. 
And beloved, as Americans, I think all of us can relate that we've got some covetousness in our hearts, don't we? When our neighbor rolls out in with something newer than us, when something newer is released, when somebody else has bigger, better, when somebody else has more, oh, it's a good deal. I'll just go out and get it, but do you need it? We don't even think about that. That is the American way, isn't it? But the Bible says that could be envy or covetousness. Ouch. Verse 22, the word deceit means to bait or, listen to this, manipulate. Any of you very good at passive, aggressive manipulation? Any of you have somebody that has pained you in the past that you have manipulated to feel badly about what they have done or somehow figured out a way to live in such a way where they are paying penance for their entire life. Beloved, that's included in this concept of deceit. Ouch. Another word on here that we often overlook is sensuality, verse 22. Literally, it means to act like a dog or a rooster, which means if you feel it and you want it, you do it. That's, that's our dog, Finley. I'm telling you what, that, that thing, we can feed it a whole sausage, which is like bigger than her stomach. As soon as she like ingests it, all of a sudden she wants something else. But how many of us live that way? Moving from one thing to the next, want it, feel it, get it, without gospel filters. Ouch. Now, these are attitudes and actions that God says are unclean. And where do they flow out of? Maybe they flow out of influences from our past. Maybe my dad was an alcoholic. Mine was not, just saying this by way of illustration. And so you say, well, this is just who I am. Remember gospel responsibility? It's our heart. And it all flows out of the beginning of this list, verse 25, out of the heart of man in evil thoughts. So the problem, beloved, if you find yourself with any of these attitudes or actions that God says are sinful, any of these attitudes and actions that God says, rightly so, are unclean, the issue is with you and your heart. So what is the solution? We have time. Go back to Exodus chapter 33. And even by me asking you to turn there, I'm illustrating the value of the Old Testament. The Old Testament serves its purpose here once again. The context of Exodus 33, which, by the way, let me just emphasize that if you're looking for something to listen to while you're mowing the yard, looking for something to listen to while you're taking a walk or you're driving to and from work, I cannot more highly recommend to you a podcast called Bible Talk, a podcast by Nine Marks. And you have to say that when you're asking Alexa or else you're going to get some Bible talk that, God bless them, I don't know. But Bible talk, a podcast by Nine Marks, are professors from Southern Seminary that walk through Genesis and now they're in Exodus and they just pick apart these chapters and I'm telling you, it will not only blow your mind, but it will heighten your love for Christ. And so episodes 33 and 34 are amazeballs. 
In 33, I'm just going to highlight some of the things that I learned from that. But listen to what Moses says. What happened is Moses is getting a second chance because he's just destroyed the commandments because the people of Israel are acting the fool. They're acting sinful. And Aaron, their priestly leader, is doing the same. I threw the jewels into the fire and out came a calf. Good job, priest. And so God, rightfully so, is livid. And, and we see here a third potential garden situation. And God says to Moses, I will destroy my people and I will begin again with you. Adam, Noah, now Moses is the third candidate, potentially. But Moses says, no, Lord. Consider what this will do to your name. Consider what this will do to your covenant. He says, no, Lord. And he makes a request in Exodus 33, verse 18. Look what it says. Moses said, please, show me your glory. I think we have to be careful with phrases like this. There's songs and lyrics that say, show us your glory. And I I understand why they're written that way, but even God's response helps us understand that we must not be flippant with this topic. Moses says, look, I I am, am begging you to be faithful to your covenant. I'm begging you not to wipe everybody out and start again with me. And to that end, I want to see your glory. I want to see you unbridled. I want to see your character. I want to be reminded of the God that I serve. Look at God's response. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. So what these professors are reminding us is that you can write down glory, equal sign, goodness. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I will show you my goodness. Let's remember that, beloved. This is very practical. When we are tempted or we hear from others, how could a good God do this? The answer to that question is, let's make sure that our definition of good is in agreement with God's definition. Let's make sure that our understanding of good aligns with his character. We'll see that unpacked here in just a moment. God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And then look at this. I will proclaim before you my name. So glory equals goodness equals name. So how is his goodness and his glory contained in his name? Look over at chapter 34, and we see God unpack his glory, his goodness, and his name in verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. But beloved, listen to this. He does get to anger. Let's make sure we do not forget that. He gets to anger, and guess what? His anger is pretty potent. But he's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And up to this point, it really reflects what a lot of people think about God, doesn't it? But look at the next phrase. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Hmm. If you are guilty, you will not be cleared on your own. 
There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. There's no amount of religion, no citizenship that you can present that you can do on your own to be cleared of your sin and your guilt. Another thing I want to highlight that really helps us better understand how this God can actually help the woeful and painful and sinful condition of our heart. Go back to chapter 33. Verse 19, the Lord said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What is he doing here? He's actually giving a foundational understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can write down Romans chapter 9 and verse 15. In that great chapter of God's sovereign character in salvation, Paul refers to this passage as the epicenter of gospel truth. So, beloved, the solution to our irreparable sinful heart, to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that our heart is desperately wicked and sick. To what David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, that we were sinners at conception. To what Paul says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who can even seek after God. There's no one who understands what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Hopelessness, but there is hope. And that is found in Hebrews chapter 4. Listen to this. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then draw with confidence near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Beloved, our time of need is every moment of every day. Because our natural tendency is to drift away from the standard of God's design. Beloved, let me just remind you that there is a one-time justification that happens when you bow your head and you believe what the Bible says about God and yourself. When you turn from your sins and you ask for his forgiveness, when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, in that moment you are justified and the righteousness of Christ covers you. But there's also vocabulary in the Bible that talks about believers being infants, being children, and needing to mature, needing to grow. That comes back to what we're talking about today. We must have gospel understanding that leads us to gospel responsibility, that produces gospel regeneration in our lives. And we keep going back to that over and over and over again, not for salvation, but for growth, for reconciliation, for restoration when we sing.